mission here, decided to call me out of retirement to be missions pastor. I didn't expect to preach much. And in the province of God, I've got to be in this pulpit much more than I expected. And this morning, in that same providence, I have been given a choice text. What with Ryan's break with his family and Jamie visiting his fiance, I've been given 2 Samuel 7, a pivotal text in the development of the history of redemption, a critically important a text for the development of the doctrine of the Messiah, the King who reigns forever. And this text is completely, almost word for word, done twice in the Bible. First Chronicles 17. This text refers back to earlier summit passages like Abraham being promised in Genesis 12 that through him blessing would come to all people. This text even refers back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. This text is developed further in the prophets, particularly in Isaiah. You remember that famous passage about a child is born, a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David. So this Second Samuel 7 text, it influences Isaiah 300 years later and it influences Psalm 89, 500 years later, Psalm 132. But the most important passage, I think, is the passage which we're all familiar with. Gabriel, speaking to the Virgin Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Second Samuel 7 an introduction now I ask you to turn and follow in the reading of Second Samuel 7 and you'll find it in the bulletin on page or you'll find it in the pew bible on page 259 2nd Samuel 7 now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build a 
house for me to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built a house of, uh, built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, I will establish, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there's none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. 
And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken to your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, show us the Lord Jesus, the King who reigns through this text, and show us your grace. And may we bask in it, and may we glorify it for you. For Jesus' glory, for the God who established and gave this grace for his glory. Amen. Ryan has uh, described this sermon series on David. If you're new here, we're in the middle of a sermon series on David. He's described it this way. Learning to live out of God's grace for his glory. Now, um, there's much grace of God poured out on David through his career. But this is the height of it. What is this text really about? What this text is really about is the king. On the surface, it's about a house. And we'll get there. But what this text is really ultimately about is the king. The king. Now, over the years I was a pastor, I've uh, made it a point of not talking about my political views in the pulpit. I don't think that anybody came to listen to my views on that matter. This is one text where I can tell you my views. Ready? I don't believe in democratic republics. I'm a monarchist. It's not because my grandma was English and my grandpa was Scottish and I went to a British school and, uh, for two years. It's not for those reasons. It's because I follow Plato. Plato said in the Republic, until philosophers are kings and kings of, are philosophers, there will never be justice. But I disagree with Pete, Plato because he put the word, made the word philosophers plural. And he made the word king plural. I believe there'll never be justice until the true philosopher, the one who really loves wisdom and righteousness and justice, is king. I'm a monarchist. And I hope every one of you here who says Jesus reigns, Jesus is Lord, is a monarchist in the same way I am. 
The trouble with democratic republics is that people who get on the ballot are fallen sinners. More than that, the people who fill out those ballots are fallen sinners. We need a king. Why do we need a king? Because we're cosmic rebels. Because we don't do what our creator would have us do. We need a king. And first of all, we need a king who wins our allegiance. And that's what King Jesus does. In his humility and his meekness and calling his subjects to himself. Come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in his meekness and in his humility, he wins our hearts. He subdues us to himself. And then he rules us. And then he conquers our enemies, including death, ultimately, itself. And so when one of us dies, we can go and not only have a service of lament, but have a service of rejoicing because we know that our king has conquered death itself but we must examine this text in a little more detail and I'm going to take you through uh, three parts standard homiletic stuff first the humble presence of our God with his people the humble presence of God secondly the primacy of grace Grace before service. And third, the appropriate response to this grace. So first, the humble presence of God. David wanted to upgrade the tent of meeting. If you use the King James, it probably says tabernacle. A fancy tent. It was a very fancy tent. It was designed by God. It was designed to reflect heaven. We are told that in Hebrews. It was beautifully constructed, but it was a tent. And that's what kings in the ancient world did. They upgraded the temples for their gods. And you know what? The gods blessed them with victory over their enemies. And it was a very transactional kind of thing. The king would upgrade the temple. The temple, the, the, the God would give uh, victory to the king and uh, both would be honored. Was that what David was doing? Might he have had mixed motives? Do sinners have mixed motives? We do know that he had the, honor, the, the motive of honoring God. But maybe a little bit, he would be honored. I don't know. What I do know is this. He wanted to upgrade the tent. And Nathan, his prophet, a bold guy, we'll see later, said, yeah, go ahead. God's with you. It's a kind of a little um, reminiscent. What about uh, Eli? God's high priest, did he misinterpret the mumbling of uh, 
prayerful Hannah, thinking she was a drunk? What about Samuel, when he first saw David's eldest brother, Elab? Oh yeah, surely this is the Messiah. And God had to correct him and say, no, I'm looking at the heart. You're looking at the outside. God's servants make mistakes. Nathan made a mistake here. And God corrects it. And notice the way that he corrects it. It's in verse 5 here. It's very blunt. Would you build a house for me? I haven't commanded any of the leaders of Israel to build a house for me. My people have been on the move. They were nomads. And I'm with them. You see, in the Old Testament and the New, the humble presence of God with his people is a matter of God's constant grace. The humble presence of God with his people. God's people were on the move in the wilderness. And so he displayed his presence there. He displayed his presence earlier to Abraham, to Jacob. Remember that dream? And Jacob said, boy, this was a house of God and I didn't know. This was a sacred place and I didn't know about it. God has revealed himself to his people. He revealed himself on the Mount Sinai with the trembling and the thunder and the lightning. And then he revealed himself in the tabernacle, more steady. Light at night, the pillar of fire. Cloud by day, here in the desert sun. It's nice to have a cloud up there. And that tabernacle was right smack in the middle with the uh, with the tents of the various tribes around it. The humble presence of God. That's our God. He humbly attends us, even though he is the maker of heaven and earth, even though he is transcendent, he's also imminent with his people. And how did this develop in the history of salvation? Well, when the time was ripe, when the time was, had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And that one who came was the word, the eternal word, the word who was with God, the word who was God. But that word became flesh, took on our flesh and blood. And it, our English translations don't do it this. Not even the King James, Lewis, does it this way. The eternal word tinted among us. Tinted among us. So the eternal word was willing to be identified as a Nazarene, out of which nothing good can come, everybody knows. The eternal word was the despised and rejected one. That's the humility of our God. I think that's the first point from this text. God humbly dwells with you. Your Savior Jesus 
has made a promise that he will live with you. His Father and he come through the Holy Spirit and dwell with us. And so we don't have temples anymore because when Jesus died, the temple was more or less abolished from heaven before Titus tore it down. It was abolished from heaven when the curtain of the innermost sanctuary was ripped from the top to the bottom. But we have another temple. We have the Holy Spirit. In the people of God and in, in individual hearts. You are temples individually. That's how humble our God is. I need to go on. The second point. The primacy of grace. Verse 5. Would you build me a house to live in? Verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David wanted to upgrade the tent to a permanent dwelling. We call them temples usually. And God says no. Not that it was wrong to make a temple because later temples were made and blessed. Solomon made a temple and it was blessed. And God had Cyrus command that the temple re be rebuilt when the exiles came back from Babylon and elsewhere. Temples were not necessarily wrong. But what God is saying here is no. I'm going to serve you not you serve me. The primacy of grace. There's a principle here. You cannot serve God unless he's first enabled you to serve him. Ryan sometimes starts his worship, the worship service here in this way. He said, Christianity is not about getting right with God. But an understanding how God has made it possible for us to be right with him. And I think what Ryan is doing is my second point here. You can't serve God unless you first let him serve you. You see... God wants servants, but he needs a particular kind of servant. Have you ever been served in a restaurant by a waiter or waitress who didn't like his job and was surly and nasty? What'd you think of that? Well, get another job, guy, gal. No, what you want is to be served with someone who delights in serving you. So God's the same way. How can we serve God? By getting a new heart. That's what regeneration is about. God has to wash us clean and give us love for himself. And when he does that, then our service is acceptable. So that's the first point I make here. But let's go on. Here. This grace Let's explore it. This grace that's promised to David. God's going to build the house. And by the way, this is one of the greatest puns 
or play on languages that we find in the Bible. Uh, the, uh, the Semites delighted in these kinds of riddles and plays on words. Uh, and uh, that's what God is doing here with his people. He's doing it with David. House means on the one hand a building, but on the other hand it means a dynasty or family, a household. And God is saying, I'm going to build your household, your family. And God says that it's going to be forever. Three times it comes the word forever, forever. And I want you to know, notice something about this gracious promise to David. It's indestructible. One of my commentators said, indefectible, undestroyable. We're reminded of the passage in 1 Peter 3, where we have an inheritance that's kept for us in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. This gracious promise cannot be revoked by death, David's death. It goes on. This gracious promise will not be revoked by sin. When David's seed, when David's offspring that take the throne misbehave, the promise remains. We have a record after David. It very quickly descends into tragedy. Solomon becomes an idolater at the end. And then his son that reigns on after him is such a nincompoop that he loses most of the kingdom. And then it just gets worse. And finally with Manasseh, whom God graciously brought back to himself at the very end, so much blood flowed that God said, this is going to end for now. But it didn't end forever because Jesus came. That's our promise. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, indefectible in the words of Ralph Dave, uh, Davis Ralph, uh, whatever the commentary's name is. Um, so, this primacy of grace is given for a purpose. It's given for the purpose that David would be a good king over the people of God. Did you notice in the first part when God's saying, hey, I've been with my people, following them. I've raised up princes, but it's for my people I care. And now, here, in the words to David, right there, I will appoint, verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. The principle here is, if God has given you gifts, if he's graced you with any abilities, any opportunities, it's for you to use for the people of God. It's not for you to take and rejoice in, in and of itself. David realized this, we'll see in his prayer. Which takes me to the next point. Responding to grace for God's glory. Taken from the way Ryan describes this. Learning to live out of 
God's grace for his glory. One of my commentators has a description of David's prayer of gratitude. He uses some alliteration. Deference, doxology, demand. Well, it's pretty good. It's just I had too much alliteration when I was a kid, and I always, when I see alliteration developing in my sermons, I work to change it. So, I'm going to go this way. Sitting. 18, verse 18. David, King David went in and sat before the Lord. How often do you sit before the Lord? Sitting implies reflection, meditation, thoughtfulness, Careful thought. What was David doing there when he was sitting? Now, we know that David was an author. Actually, a very skilled poet. So we know he could read. What might he have read? Well, he would have read the books of Moses. He would have read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy. He would have known about Abraham being called and Abraham being told, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. How in the world was that going to happen? He would have known about David or Abraham waiting for the first child. And Sarah not getting pregnant. And the efforts with Hagar. He would have known these stories. And he would have been familiar with their wording. Now what did he hear from Nathan? He heard that his seed or offspring out of his loins would be established king forever. Where had he heard that before? Genesis 15. Out of the loins of Abraham would come such a multitude of people that you couldn't number them like the stars of the sky, stars of the heavens. And so what we see him doing here is seven times using a very unusual title for God. It's uh, in our, both the King James and in the ESV, it's, O Lord God. But notice something careful, carefully there. If you look at it, who am I, O Lord God? God is in caps. But usually it's not. What's going on here? Behind that is the word Yahweh, the personal name for God. Usually, when the personal name for God is there, it's all caps in Lord. But here, Lord is there, but it's not in all caps. See, here, he's using the Hebrew appellation for God. Adonai, 
Yahweh. Where did he heard that? Abraham used it in Genesis 15. And so David, as he sits there thinking, sitting before God, meditating, he comes up with this statement. And this is instruction for mankind. Look at it, verse 19. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great time to come. And this is instruction for mankind. Oh, Adonai Yahweh. This is instruction for men. The words are very simple. Torah for Adam. Adam. But what do they mean? And our translations are all over the place in how they're translated. The NIV said, is this your way, usual way of dealing with mankind? I think what's going on here, I'm following my uh, Hebrew um, teacher of 50 plus years ago. What David is realizing is that this, through his seed, is the way that God is going to provide the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent. This is the way that God will provide for blessing to come to all peoples everywhere. This is the way that God will bring about his promise that Jacob gave to Judah when Jacob was on his deathbed. The scepter will come to Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah will reign. That's reflection. Do you sit before God and reflect, meditate, and think about the way that he has shepherded you little by little. I'm sure what also went through David's mind was what Nathan had said from God. I took you from the sheep. I took you from the pastors. And he probably went through all of his long struggle fleeing from Saul. But sitting before the Lord, and reflecting in the old hymn, Count Your Many Blessings. That's a way to respond to grace. That's a way to respond and so that God gets the glory. Let's go on. Sitting. Next one. Humility. Who am I, O oh Lord? I once saw a sticker, bumper sticker. I'm proud to be a Christian. People, proud Christians are, is an oxymoron. Christians are called to humility because we follow one who was humble and meek. Next, faith. It's very clear that David didn't disdain this word. Like some of his uh, descendants like King Ahaz, when uh, Isaiah would give him a good word and said, no, I don't want a sign. And then the sign is given of the virgin who will uh, give birth. David believed, faith, praise. Praise to God alone 
it's one of the places where some commentators say it's one of the most clearest expression of monotheism in the Old Testament where who is uh, therefore you are great there is none like you there's no God beside you very blunt no God beside you praise and then prayer do what you just told me you were going to do that's what prayer is telling God you've said this now please do it coming home from the uh, uh, Jan's Adams memorial service somebody in our car was noticing all the heavy traffic and saying what if the rapture happened what kind of a mess we would be in in the traffic but we don't talk about the rapture anymore in our church well we don't usually use that word because of its connotations but do we remember the blessed hope Those of you who were there at the memorial service, do you remember those two sisters, the daughters of uh, Jan, and getting up and telling them about some of the sayings of their mother? Hannah, apparently, was quite capable of noting and remarking on injustice. I think all kids say, that's not fair. Some of them are better at it, whining, than others. How do we respond? You know what Jan told Hannah? God will judge. Apparently she rubbed her back and said, Hannah, God will judge. Is that claiming our blessed hope that Jesus reigns? It is. Claim that hope. You're going to have the opportunity to meet Jesus at the table that he instituted in a moment. Claim the hope that you will one day be with him forever. Your king who has subdued you to himself by his winsome, meek, and humble character. And rejoice next week when we have Palm Sunday and we're reminded about how the king disdained a war horse and entered his capital city on a donkey. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace poured out immeasurably upon us. May we always be reminded that grace comes before service.